Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. After 1396, France and England remained locked in a Cold War. French forces continued to make incursions into Aquitaine, gaining territory in Saintonge, the Agenais, and Perigord. The French continued to support the Scots and sent aid to the Welsh prince Owain Glendour, who began an uprising against the English in 1400. French soldiers and military advisers might even have been active in Wales and the west of England. For their part, the English raided the coasts of Normandy and sponsored piracy in the Channel. Despite this continuing low-grade conflict, the French and English could have, in time, reached a lasting diplomatic settlement. But after 1392, the Valois monarchy of France was plunged into a serious and prolonged crisis. In that year, for the first time, King Charles VI fell into madness. For the rest of his life, he would oscillate between periods of lucidity and bouts of insanity. Contemporary chronicles, diaries, letters, and histories record that he suffered from a wide range of symptoms. He flew into wild rages, during which he could commit acts of horrific violence. In 1392, he slaughtered four of his own household knights. At other times, he plunged into complete lassitude, such as in 1405, when he refused to bathe and change his clothes for five months. Often, he was unable to recognize those closest to him, including his wife and children. But perhaps the most famous manifestation of Charles VI's madness was the so-called glass delusion. The French king became convinced that his body was made of glass, and he would shatter with the least movement or disturbance. He then remained immobilized under thick blankets. If he had to move, he only did so in a special costume reinforced with iron ribs. Diagnosing historical illnesses is notoriously difficult because of the unreliability of the source material. Historians' best guess is that Charles VI suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. As an anointed king, Charles VI could not be deposed. Instead, his closest relatives rushed to take control of the French state. The result was an increasingly fierce struggle for power among various Valois princes and dukes. At first, the royal court and government were controlled by Charles VI's brother, Louis, Duke of Orléans. Both avaricious and libertine, one courtier remarked, Monsieur, the Duke of Orléans, is young and likes playing dice and whoring. Louis soon drew the ire and jealousy of John, Duke of Burgundy, who was called the Fearless. As the king's cousin, John the Fearless was a senior member of the royal dynasty. He was also the ruler of a great appanage that included the rich and populous province of Burgundy, as well as Flanders and many other territories in the Low Countries and along the Rhine. In 1407, John the Fearless had Louis of Orléans murdered. The Duke of Burgundy then seized control of the royal government. But Louis's son, Charles, although just 13 years old at the time, swore vengeance. In 1410, Charles of Orléans, the Dukes of Berry and Brittany, and the Counts of Alençon, Clermont, and Armagnac formed the League of Gien against Burgundy. 
Charles also married Armagnac's daughter, thereby giving rise to his faction commonly being called the Armagnacs. A full-blown civil war broke out between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. England was soon drawn into this civil war. The king of England was Henry IV. Both French factions approached him for military assistance. First off the mark were the Burgundians. In 1411, an English force of 800 men-at-arms and 2,000 archers arrived in France and helped John the Fearless take control of Paris. The next year, the Armagnacs approached Henry IV with an offer no English king could refuse, a recognition that Aquitaine was rightfully English, the cession of 20 important towns and castles, and the future transfer to England of other important lands, most notably Poitou. By the Treaty of Bourges of May 1412, Henry IV agreed to send 4,000 troops to France under the command of his second son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence. Yet by the time Clarence arrived in France, the Burgundians at Armagnacs had made peace. Facing unified French opposition, Clarence allowed himself to be bought off and withdrew back to England. In March 1413, Henry IV died. He was succeeded by his eldest son, who became Henry V. Aged 26, the new king was in his prime and unusually well prepared for his role. His father had been chronically ill throughout his reign, which meant that Henry had been an active participant and often the dominant voice in the councils of state. Henry also had extensive experience of warfare. He had played a leading part in the war against the Welsh rebel prince Owen Glendour. In 1403, aged 16, Henry had fought in his first battle, a Shrewsbury against the Percys, the most powerful noble family in northern England who had joined forces with Glendour. While leading his troops in the thick of the fighting, Henry had been struck full in the face by an arrow. The royal surgeon, a pardoned counterfeiter named John Bradmore, succeeded in extracting the arrow after an operation lasting many hours and done without anesthesia. The horrendous scarring caused by such a wound may be the reason why the only surviving portrait of Henry V portrays him in profile rather than in the three-quarters position favored by other medieval English kings. Finally, one of Henry's most striking qualities was his deep and devout religiosity, which was conspicuous and noteworthy even in an age of fervent faith. From the outset of his reign, Henry V was determined to achieve all the goals in France his predecessors had fought for. He took his role as king extremely seriously and wanted his reign to represent a new beginning at home as well as abroad. In addition to these personal ambitions, Henry had practical political reasons to act aggressively toward France. His father had come to the throne by overthrowing King Richard II in a military coup in 1399. In doing so, he had replaced the main line of the Plantagenets with a new dynasty, the Lancastrians. The taint of usurpation still hung over Henry V. Success in France would dispel this taint and buttress his legitimacy. There were also doubts in certain quarters about Henry's suitability as king. In 1411 and 1412, he had clashed bitterly with his father over which side to support in the French Civil Wars and had fallen out of favor as a result. Some in England remained skeptical about his policies, yet it was the French who were the most dubious about Henry's kingship. 
Shakespeare has popularized the story that the Dauphin, the French king's heir, insulted Henry by sending him a gift of tennis balls. This story is a myth created by English propaganda. However, there is ample evidence that the French publicly dismissed Henry as a lightweight. Henry was eager to prove his English and French critics wrong. Perhaps most importantly, Henry saw great opportunities in the continuing crisis in France. In the summer of 1413, the fragile peace between the Armagnacs and Burgundians had broken down. The two sides were again fighting openly. The English king first tried diplomacy. In May 1414, he dispatched a high-ranking embassy to the Armagnacs, who were then in the ascendancy in Paris and controlled King Charles VI. The ambassadors presented expansive demands, the restoration and full sovereignty of all the lands awarded to England by the Great Peace of Bretigny, the addition of Normandy, Touraine, Maine, and Anjou, the feudal homage of Flanders and Brittany, and the hand in marriage of Catherine, daughter of the French king. The Armagnacs countered with offers to restore the Bretigny lands and to permit Princess Catherine to marry Henry V. The ambassadors rejected these terms and returned to England empty-handed. But Henry was double-dealing. At the same time, as his embassy was negotiating with the Armagnacs, an envoy was in talks with the Duke of Burgundy about an alliance. Initially receptive, the Duke ultimately did not pursue this arrangement. In February 1415, Henry V sent a second English embassy to France. Admitted into Paris in March, the ambassadors only demanded a return to the Bretigny terms. However, since the first English embassy, the Armagnac and Burgundian factions had again made peace. The French rejected the English demand outright. In fact, the English king was no longer serious about a diplomatic settlement. Henry V calculated that with the French united and feeling confident, they would be in no mood at all to bargain. The embassy was intended to make the English look like the moderate party and the French as unreasonable. Henry was then able to go to war, claiming he was seeking justice and the restoration of his rights. The perspective from Paris was altogether different. As Anne Curry points out, the French posed no threat to England, this was simply an act of aggression. The well-oiled English war machine was already in motion. Henry V summoned Parliament in November 1414. The Royal Chancellor, Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, then explained to the Assembly how our most sovereign Lord the King desires especially that good and wise action should be taken against his enemies outside the realm, and that he will strive for the recovery of the inheritance and right of his crown outside the realm, which has for a long time been withheld and wrongfully kept since the time of his progenitors, kings of England, in accordance with the authorities who wish that unto death shalt thou strive for justice. Parliament duly voted the king a large subsidy to wage war. With funds in hand, Henry V began intensive discussions with his nobles, knights, and other prominent members of the English military community, in other words his captains, about the retinues they could raise for his army. On April 29, 1415, the indentures of war were sealed. At least 320 captains contracted with the king. The retinues varied tremendously in size, from the 960 troops 
of the king's eldest brother, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, to a single man-at-arms serving with a few archers. A striking feature of nearly all the retinues was that they had a ratio of three archers to one man-at-arms. Clarence's retinue, for instance, had 720 archers and 240 men-at-arms. This represented a significant shift from the first phases of the Hundred Years' War, when retinues had a ratio of one man-at-arms to one archer. Increasing the number of archers was a way to stretch the available funds to build the largest possible army. A non-titled or ordinary man-at-arms was paid one shilling per day, an archer sixpence. Archers were all-round soldiers, useful in all tactical situations, and because most were mounted, just as mobile on campaign as men-at-arms. In fact, Henry V made a great effort to maximize his archer arm. In addition to the archers in the retinues, he raised special companies from the shires of his kingdom that produced the finest longbowmen, Cheshire, Lancashire, and South Wales. Because North Wales remained rebellious, the king did not raise any troops there. All in all, Henry's army consisted of over 12,000 soldiers. During the entire Hundred Years' War, it was second in size only to Edward III's army for the 1346 Crecy campaign. Henry V's achievement was especially impressive given that the population of England in 1415 was only half that of 1346, largely because of the Black Death. That this army was a national force brought together to achieve a common purpose was symbolized by Henry's requirement for all troops to wear the Red Cross of St. George on their front and back. This grand army was extraordinarily expensive. In addition, King Henry had to mobilize a powerful siege train as well as a large fleet to transport his forces to France. Parliament's subsidy was quickly spent as were loans advanced by London. Henry V resorted to giving his own jewels to his captains as security for future payments of wages. On August 13, 1415, 1,500 English ships, a fleet 12 times the size of the Spanish Armada, appeared at the mouth of the River Seine. Strict orders were issued that no one was to land before the king. The next day, Henry V came ashore. He instantly fell to his knees and prayed to God to give him justice against his enemies. For the first time in 50 years, an English king had come in person to France to make war. 